Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, I am really glad that you're here this morning, on this Easter morning. I have a a lot that I want to say, and I only have a little bit of time to say it, so I don't want to waste any time this morning. I feel like a little bit like the chicken that decided he was going to lay an egg on the California freeway. He asked the rooster for advice, and the rooster said, here's how you need to do it. <laughs> you need to lay it on the line and do it in a hurry. And so I want to, this morning I want to lay it on the line and I want to do it in a hurry. And here's what I want to start with. I want to be really clear as we begin because this is the overarching single truth that I want to talk to you about and I believe God wants to talk to you about this morning. That the reason that we are here this morning, the reason this event is taking place is because 2,000 years ago, a real man of history, a man that lived and breathed and walked and talked and performed a, a set of deeds, a real man of history, he made an audacious claim. His name was Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear from an eyewitness that heard the claim and wrote it down so that we would know what Jesus said. Here is the audacious claim that Jesus made in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, and Jesus began to teach them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, we are here this morning because not simply this man, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, living in Palestine, made the audacious claim that he was going to be killed, but three days later he was going to rise again. We're here because he accomplished the claim. That's what this day is about. In fact, if that did not happen, I wouldn't waste my time being here. I mean that. This would just be Form without any help. But if the resurrection is true, then what's happening here this morning makes all the difference in the world. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Here is what the great apostle Paul, who wrote a large portion of the New Testament, maybe the most influential Christian of history, here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And on top of that, if Christ has not been raised, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ. Paul says, man, our words are just empty Everything that we teach and preach, our words are empty if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, it's even worse than that. We are liars saying that God did something he didn't do. He goes on. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you're guilty before God of sin, whether you Think you're saved or not. If Christ never raised from the dead, you're in your sin and you are headed to hell. And then he ends with this statement. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. You see, the point I want to make clearly is this. Christianity rises and falls on one great truth. And that truth is that a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago lived a life and said, I'm going to die and be buried, but three days later I'm coming back to life. And that act is going to do this. It's going to prove that I am who I said that I am. God. That if the resurrection is not true, then my teaching is not. But if it is true, if I do do that, then it validates all that I am and all that I've taught. So the resurrection is the centerpiece to Christianity. If it's true, then you better seriously look at who Jesus is and what he says to you about your life and your future life. So we're going to talk around that subject this morning. We're going to talk around the fact that Jesus is alive. You see, and I'm going to be bold with this, I know he's alive. I don't think he's alive. I'm not pretty convinced he walked out of that tomb. I know, I bet my life, my very life on the fact that Jesus Christ stepped out of that tomb. And I don't do that in blind faith. I don't have a blind faith. I have a very reasonable, logical, defensible faith that Jesus is alive. You see, I don't have time to do this this morning. But I'll say this, it can be done. Jesus and his resurrection can be proven. It can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It can't be proven to someone that looks at the facts and just refuses to believe them. But if someone is a seeker of truth, really wants to know and looks closely and analytically at the evidence the fact is that you will come to the reasonable conclusion that he is alive, just like he said he would be alive. 
I don't know where you're at this morning in life. But I want to make a parallel here with the Easter story. Just for a moment. I'm going to just take a couple of characters out of the Easter story. If you've read the story, you might remember this. Jesus was crucified on Friday. His followers, broken, downcast, hopeless, hiding away, fearing for their lives. And on Sunday morning, very early in the morning, some women made a lonely journey, head hung down, hearts broken to go to the tomb as was the custom to anoint the body that had been placed there. And I'm wondering this morning, I believe this morning, that they're very similar to some of us. You see, here's what's true about life. It doesn't turn out like we think it does. Anybody want to agree with me in that? Has life just tracked the way that you thought it would and all your hopes and expectations and dreams and plans for the future when you were young and full of life? Has that all panned out like you thought it would? No, what happened was you hit some stuff in life that you didn't expect to hit. It hit you. And it knocked you down. And it drug you through the dirt. And it broke your spirit. And it dashed your hopes to the ground. That's my story. And I'm pretty sure if you've lived very long, it's your story. Because that's what life does. You see, that's the story of these women. They were going to that tomb. They knew the dead body was there. But they didn't have anything else to do. They loved him and they loved him enough they just wanted to be by his dead body and mourn there. They had an unknown future. What were they going to do now? All their hopes had been in him. They had wrapped up everything in their life around that man, Jesus Christ. And they had a wounded heart. They were broken over his horrific Tragic death, and now he was gone. And they had an unfulfilled existence. You see, they weren't doing on that Sunday morning, early in the morning, on the way to the tomb, broken hard, what they wanted to do. That's not where they wanted to be. They wanted to be back two weeks ago in the action when he was healing people and when he was teaching the crowds with profound wisdom. But now they were doing what they had to do, not what they wanted to do, because life had defeated them. You see, I'm pretty convinced some of you came in here this morning with an unknown future and a wounded heart and an unfulfilled existence. Life has just tore you up. And the hope is gone, and you're existing and you're not living. Well, here's the truth of Easter. You see, if that's you, Easter is the story for you. Because 
here's what Easter is about. I could put it into this statement. Easter is about God taking the why God of life and turning it into the wow God. That's the story of Easter, right? Think about the followers of Jesus. Friday night hiding out, Saturday night hiding out, wondering what are we going to do? Our life is turned upside down. We had rested all of our hopes in Him. Why God? It was the blackest day of their life. But then Easter Sunday morning dawned, and as those ladies rounded the bend and came to the tomb, they didn't find what they thought they were going to find. They didn't find a sealed tomb with a dead body inside. They found a tomb that the stone had been rolled away. And then they were met by two visitors, by angels who gave them a message. And let me read that message to you in Matthew 28, 5 and 6. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And what happened in that moment is that the hope that had been dashed to the rocks and defeated leaped to new life. And it became an undefeatable hope because what else could destroy it now? The one that they had put their hope in had defeated the grave and was alive with an inconquerable life. They were transformed in that moment. As were many more in the moments that followed and the days that followed. See, Easter, and because of what happened on Easter, there is this unbelievable work of God that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ, that can take your why gods and turn them into wow gods can take your rock bottoms and turn them into mountaintop experiences. Listen to this testimony. There is no greater miracle than a transformed life. It's bigger than the parting of the Red Sea or the feeding of the 5,000. It is actually a return from death to life of the human spirit. Max and I began our life together in September of 1969, and we arrived in Alaska 10 days later. We really flourished in our careers. I was in various uh, nursing positions, finally as an associate professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage School of Nursing. And Max was a building contractor. He built and developed uh, properties all over the Anchorage Bowl. Max had accepted Jesus as his Savior uh, when he was a child. But I didn't come to know the Lord until after we had moved to Alaska and began attending church here. We had a lot going for us, but our relationship as a couple was rocky, and our relationship with God was shallow. I was ignorant, having very little uh, Christian teaching in my life, and
and Max was way more interested in flying than he was in strengthening his relationship with God. In 1980, I resigned my professorship and went into private practice. This meant leaving a stable wage and with good benefits and starting self-employment that had no benefits and very little uh, salary. Um, but Max was doing very well with his contracting, so there were really no worries. Then, eight to ten years later, the construction and real estate industry in Anchorage crashed. Uh, banks closed, uh, the value of property plummeted. Many people that were in that industry were left hanging out, including us. Now, we had not only a rocky relationship in our marriage and a rocky relationship with God, but we were also at rock bottom financially. So in the fall of 1990, we downsized to a tiny cabin that had no running water and no kitchen and uh, was just one room. Uh, Max left the state to try to find work and I went to work as a salesperson at Nordstrom and uh, tried to maintain my practice during the day. For the next five to six years, we were in a desert, emotionally, financially, and spiritually. I lost my father when I was 10 years old. I remember so much about him. My father was a pastor. I uh, gained heritage from my father, from my mother, that has really served me for all my life here. I've always as a child, always knew God. I feared God, though, because sometimes I was out of obedience in Him. After coming to Alaska, my passion was really flying. I just loved to fly, and I always wondered if I wouldn't be able to fly, what life would be like. I don't think it'd be much. I, uh, my passion was flying, and uh, God was secondary. And I looked back at it, and I sure had that mixed up. Then in 1996, in December of 1996, I was invited to go to Guatemala on a mission trip, my very first trip. And on the way down to Guatemala, I had a road to Damascus experience. In a moment, God spoke to me, and he, he just moved my inner core. And he gave me a message, and the message was, the gate is in plain sight, but many are not going to find it unless you show them that. I was in total shock, but immediately I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I looked back at it, and it happened at that moment. I have never been the same since. It just had never been the same. I believe my passion for missions and winning souls was born on that day. What God has given me on that moment and throughout is the Spirit of God in me. And I cannot describe what that means. I don't think any human can do that. It has been just incredible, and it has not ceased. It's just that way. When Max came back from that first mission trip, I could tell he was different. He was kinder, 
he was striving to immerse himself in the things of the Lord. And as I witnessed those changes over months and then over years, I began to change. I became gentler in my heart, and I also began to look more toward the good of others. For one thing, I wanted people to feel welcome when they came to church. So whether they were early or late. So I just started waiting at the door and greeting people as they came in. Still today, I do that. It's a privilege and a joy to me to welcome people to Cornerstone. Then God called me into police chaplaincy. That was a big surprise and has been a joy. And the chaplaincy, along with my professional practice, along with my work with community organizations, has really kept me awash in ministry to others. I have pondered why... Max's change has such an effect on my change. For a long time, I thought it was because I was just too weak of a Christian on my own. But then I realized that Max's full surrender kind of set me free spiritually. And it's because the husband really is the head of the wife. And as Max had a full surrender, it opened the door for me to surrender fully. In the years that passed since that uh, moment in 1996, I've asked God for forgiveness of having my uh, passions in the wrong order. God has given me a new passion, a passion of missions and winning souls. He has been using me in uh, Cornerstone ongoing missions in Guatemala. In that effort, there has been thousands of souls saved. At the same time, Mary has her own ministries, and it is so neat that we are able, we pray, we discuss the different points that happen during the day and the different missions. And it's been really a blessing. I think God has really blessed us in these ministries to be able to come together and share our thoughts, our prayers, and our concerns with each other. When I uh, cast my crown in front of Jesus' feet, I don't want to cast earthly accomplishments. No, I want to cast souls that I was able to help show the gate to. And that is our story. And I just, I just want to tell you, if you don't know Max and Mary, if you've been coming here for any period of time, you know the greeter extraordinaire in Mary. I'm sure that you've encountered her. But if you really don't know them, I can tell you that's not a story. It's a, it's a real deal. It's a real deal watched it. I've been here 25 years at this church myself. And they are living that kind of a life. They went from rock bottom by their own testimony to a mountaintop. They went from a why God to a wow God. And what is it that makes 
those transformations of life powerful or possible? What makes them possible? Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen carefully to this because the answer to that question is right here. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 18 down through 20, verse 20. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which God has called you. Talking to followers of Christ. And what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? For those who are following Christ. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Toward us who believe in Jesus Christ. That power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So here is what Paul said there. He said, for followers of Christ, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, here is the power that is available and toward them and for them in their life. It is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power. That the follower of Christ, those who have put their faith in Christ, need to understand that the immeasurable greatness of God's power, which is limitless, unending, proven by the resurrection, that that power is for followers of Christ, for those who have committed their life to Him. Wow. You see, that's what enables a why God to become a wow God. That same power that did it on that first Easter is the power that is doing it today. You see, the story of Easter transforms grave clothes to royal robes. Brokenness to blessedness. Tears of sorrow to tears of joy, fear to boldness, worry to wonder. It's over to it's forever. That's the power of Easter. That's the power of the resurrection. Mary said there that there's nothing like the power of a transformed life. Here's another story of a transformed life. My name is Margaret, and I came from an abusive home in southeast Kansas. I met somebody in the high school I went to that was the perfect person to find me. He was an abuser, and I was a victim. I had a flashing neon sign on my forehead that said, Hey, come abuse me. I'm quite comfortable with this. Only I didn't know there was another way of life. From there, we went to college and ended up then teaching school on the Aleutian chain. 
the abuse continued, it accelerated. One day he had been out on the boat, I think there were drugs involved, and he came back to the apartment we were staying in. He took off a belt and he beat me for eight solid hours. It is normal for an abuser to pick the things that are most precious to the victim and try to destroy those right in front of the victim. In my case, it was two little poodle dogs. I had prior to that time not been a believer. I, in fact, had been a mocker of, of Christians, of religion, of Jesus, of everyone. That particular time, I felt like this was the last of it for me. I wasn't going to survive this beating. I then prayed, if there is a God up there, take care of the little dogs. I don't care about me, but I do care about the dogs. I fell asleep after eight hours of being beaten, and the next morning I woke up. I had no bruises. I had no broken bones. I had no black eyes, which was incredible. I also knew that at that time I had been wrong. There is a God up there. <laughs> I went to work for the IRS in Anchorage for 22 years. I was told to do unethical and illegal things and I refused. I was told if I didn't, I would be fired and I was fired. I sued the IRS even though they had absolute immunity. I was the only employee that has ever sued them. And I sued them through the Merit System Protection Board in San Francisco. The case started there. It went to. Washington, D.C. to the Court of Claims and went back to the Merit System Protection Board and a judge there spent a month going through my records. She found that everything I said was the truth and everything the IRS said was wrong. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to law school. And she said, do you have any money? And I said, no. I prayed over the weekend and God said, you are going to law school and you're going to be a tax attorney and you're going to work for abused women and children. So I told her the next day and that is exactly what I did. I went to law school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, when I first signed up, I found that the tuition was 30000 per term. And then I found out right after arriving in Grand Rapids that I'd been declared dead in Alaska six months prior to that. I had no knowledge of that. I did not know my properties had been seized. God was with me in this entire life story because at that point, I was able to get a student loan for $10,250 and I went to law school. There is such a need out there for anybody to help abused women and children. They cannot help themselves and they need the support of the community. They need the support of anybody in the church. The church cannot turn their backs on them. Mother Teresa said, if you can't feed a hundred, feed one. I think this is applicable to abused women and children. If you can't help a hundred get out of bondage, help that one. My story is that I have overcome one pitfall after another. I didn't realize it at the time, but God's grace has been with me through this entire ordeal. However, I have persevered with his grace, and he is now giving me this opportunity to uh, give something back, and it's only due to God's grace. Here's the, here's the difficulty with the testimony like that. The 
stuff comes so fast, you just want to say, slow down, i got to figure out what you're saying. It is so unbelievable. I wish you could have been in my office a couple of weeks ago uh, when Margaret spent two or three hours just telling me her story. You know what I was saying through most of that time? Wow. 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 You know, the heartaches come so fast, but the miracles come so fast that I was just amazed. But it's just another story that's related to Easter. It's another story of a life full of why gods that God steps into in the person of Jesus Christ and turns it into a wow God. Here is a lady abused decade after decade that about the time everybody else is retiring for the rest of her life, she goes to law school. so that she can help abused women because she has a purpose for her life, an exciting venture that her and God are walking together. You see, what makes that possible, ladies and gentlemen, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've caught this, When Max and Mary were sharing their testimony on the video there, Max talked about that situation at the airport when he had his Damascus Road experience. For those of you that don't understand that reference, it's referring to the life of Saul in the first century, the great persecutor of Christians, the one that was vehemently out to kill and in prison, and seized the property of followers of Jesus Christ. And he was on the road to Damascus, and he had his Damascus Road experience. And what that was, was that Jesus showed up on the road. The dead Jesus that he thought was gone showed up on the road and appeared to him and knocked him to the ground and introduced himself. And Paul got up off the ground realizing Jesus is God. And Saul, the persecutor of Christians, became Paul, the greatest Christian of history. One encounter with the living Christ and his life was radically transformed. What I want to do in the few moments that we have remaining... I can only just touch on this very briefly. But I want to show you some very valid reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be seen from right here in the 21st century can be seen to be an absolute reasonable truth. It can really happen. In fact, like I said earlier in this message, if you will take the time, if you're an honest seeker, 
and you look at the evidence, there is ample, ample evidence that would lead any person that is open to finding out the real truth to this conclusion. That man that claimed he was going to come back from the dead came back from the dead. The evidence points to that undeniably. Listen to Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Here's the first piece of evidence. Writing about Jesus following his death and his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. It says in Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want you to notice several things here. First of all, Jesus appeared following his resurrection, not one time, many times. One time might be an hallucination, might be a dream, might be somebody getting themselves emotionally worked up, even if it was to a dozen or two. Well, maybe they wanted it so bad, but no, it didn't happen to one or two or a couple of dozen. It happened to hundreds upon hundreds of people over a period of 40 days. Jesus kept appearing and kept appearing. And here's what He did when He appeared. It says that He showed them convincing proofs that He was alive. Right? He showed up and he said, guys, it's me. I'm tangible. Come and touch me. Give me some food. Let me eat it in your presence. Let me prove that I am real. I'm alive. And then he would talk to them about the kingdom of God. And he kept doing that for 40 days over and over again. At one point, he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. And 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. And they all saw the same thing at the same time. So what was the result Here's the question. Here's the evidence that I want to get to that you can, from the 21st century, look back and absolutely see the reasonable basis for believing that Jesus came back to life, just like he said he would. Here's the question. What was the result of Jesus' 40-day Jerusalem tour after his resurrection? What happened because of that? You see, when he died, he had just over a hundred followers who had rallied around him and then in shock and awe had seen him die and had their hopes dashed and then went into hiding for fear of their lives. He had about a hundred and twenty Well, here's what we know from verifiable historical data, archaeological data, empirical evidence. We know that Jerusalem at the time of Christ was a city of about a quarter of a million people. 250,000 people. Just a little smaller than the city of Anchorage. It's a lot of people. And when Jesus died... 
he had just over a hundred who had been his followers. Now, what would you assume if you were just treating this logically, what would you assume would happen to the followers of a man who had lived a pretty incredible life, but said over and over again, I'm going to die in three days, and I'm going to die, and in three days I'm coming back to life. And if he never came back to life, if that never came true, what would happen to those followers? Would that sect grow? Would those hundred or so just continue to claim him and follow him around? No. What would happen is that thing would die out and it would fade into oblivion. That sect would be gone. So now, let's look at the evidence. Verifiable, empirical, archaeological evidence that proves this. Twenty years after Jesus' resurrection, that 120 believers had become 125,000 believers. One half the city of Jerusalem had become followers of Jesus Christ in two decades. Now how is that possible? There is only one way that's possible. There is only one possible scenario. And that scenario is this. A man made an audacious claim that he was going to die and be buried. And three days later, he was going to prove himself to be God by coming back from the dead. And three days later, he got off the stone cold slab and he walked out of the tomb alive. And the people saw him and he appeared to them for 40 days and he gave convincing proofs that he was alive and those people that 120 they went out and they started telling people he's alive he's alive I've seen him I've seen him he's alive folks all they would have had to have done is went to the tomb and disprove it by opening up and finding the body if they wanted to find the body and disprove the claim, but nobody disproved it. Why? Because he was alive. And 120 didn't die out. It exploded in the greatest revival that you could imagine until one half the size of Anchorage. Just think about that. 20 years, every other person you meet in Anchorage, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, he's alive. Yeah, that's what it'd be like. That's the equivalent. See, I, there is reasonable evidence, verifiable evidence, that if you are honest, yes, you could say, oh, I'm not going to believe that, you know, supernatural. Yeah, you could deny it, but if you look at the evidence, if you're honest with yourself and you look at the evidence, here's the truth. You're going to find that it's reasonable. In fact, that everything else is unreasonable and it's the greatest truth of history. That's what you'll find. I've shared this before, but I just love the story. Sir Lyle Luku. Sir Lyle Luku was without question the greatest trial lawyer of history. 
unprecedented. No one else even comes close to his successful career as a trial lawyer. A lawyer trying murder cases. He had 153 murder trials that he performed. Guess how many he won? 153. Now, logically, just consider this. What kind of an analytical mind, what kind of a gifting must he have had to look at evidence and research it and build a case? Maybe unparalleled. And he was a skeptic. He was a disbeliever in Christianity. That was foolishness. And then he sat down and he looked at the evidence. He brought his analytical brilliance to the table. And when he got up from the study, he said, there is no doubt but that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he became a follower of Jesus. And that has happened over and over and over and over again to great skeptics down through history. It's happening today. It's happening because Jesus got up off the slab and walked out of the tomb. And the evidence is undeniable to that truth. Let me just give you one more and I'll bring this to a close. Apostles of Jesus. These are the guys hiding behind the clock, locked doors on Saturday, Friday night and Saturday, following the crucifixion, fearing for their lives. Do you know what those men went out and did later? I'm just going to read you the list. I'm going to read you the transformation of the followers of Jesus who were asking why God on Saturday following the crucifixion and see what happened to them. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, Years later, Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by the sword because he would fearlessly preach Jesus and refused to stop until they killed him for it. Hiding behind the door to saying, you can't shut me up, kill me if you will. But I'm going to continue to preach Jesus. Why? Because death had lost its power. Jesus had come out of the tomb and he had said to him, Tom, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back to life. You don't have to fear anything. You follow me. I've got it covered. Mark. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. He wouldn't shut up about Jesus. So they killed him. 
Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of his tremendous preaching to the lost. John faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil during a wave of persecution against Christians in Rome. Here's a problem. Miraculously, he didn't die in the boiling oil. And so they said, well, we're just going to sentence you then to the prison to work the mines on the island of Patmos. There's an old man, and while he was there, he wrote the book of Revelation. And then, finally, he was later freed and he returned to serve as the bishop in what is now modern Turkey. He died as an old man, the only one that died peacefully of the twelve. James, the just. James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, fall of over a hundred feet, because he refused to deny his faith in Jesus Christ. When they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat James to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew, missionary to Asia, he was flayed to death by a whip for preaching about Jesus Christ. Jude, the brother of Jesus, he was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in his brother Jesus. I mean, how many brothers are going to go to the stake saying, yeah, my brother was God? (laughs) He had to know it, folks. He had to know it. And how could he have known it? He saw him back from the dead, just like he said he would come back. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, he was stoned and then beheaded. The apostle Thomas, you remember Thomas? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. It's a bad rap. All of us have been doubters, right? Doubting Thomas. I'm not going to believe unless I put my hands in his in the nail scars and the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side where they thrust the spear to prove that he was dead. I'm not going to believe unless he's right here and I can stick my hand in his living flesh and see those marks. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips. He would went there to establish the church. Peter was crucified. According to the church tradition, he told his tormentors as they were about to crucify him that he felt unworthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus. Please crucify me upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Patras, Greece. After being whipped severely by seven soldiers, they tied his body to the cross with cords to prolong his agony. 
his followers reported this, that when he was led to the cross, here's what Andrew said and did. He saluted the cross and he said, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. Do you understand what he's saying there? Oh, I've longed for this moment. That's an incredible thing. Jesus consecrated the cross and it's an honor for me to die like my Lord. Folks, he could not do that unless he knew that death was empty. And without any teeth, and without any real bite, and that when he died, he was going to see Jesus again, just like he saw him after he came back from the dead. You see, it's reasonable. It's reasonable. If you take the facts of history into play, nothing else makes sense. Finally, James, the son of Zebedee, was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. Roman officer who guarded James watched in amazement at James' trial. Watched in amazement as James defended his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then James was sentenced to death by beheading and the soldier that had witnessed the testimony led James to the place of execution. And when they got to the place of execution, that soldier that had heard that testimony had been transformed and he himself declared his faith in Jesus Christ. And he kneeled down and accepted beheading with James. The soldier did. Because he had discovered the truth in the message. Jesus is alive. And ladies and gentlemen, there is just a long list of other evidences like that that prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what we're celebrating here this morning is not just some fanciful story of history. It is a fact of history. It is an undeniable fact of history that a man named Jesus said, I'm going to be killed at the hands of the religious leaders and three days later I'm coming back to life and what that means is to prove that I'm God and that everything I said is true and that all my promises I've made are going to come true and so you can trust in me. And so that's what I did. I came to that conclusion that it is the only reasonable conclusion Jesus is alive. And that fact of the resurrection means that He is who He said that He is. He's the Lord. And He then is the author of my life. And I owe it to Him. In fact, 
the great privilege in life is to live it for Him instead of chasing the empty things of life that bring nothing and leave me unsatisfied. I tried those. But I can tell you that Jesus is the only thing that satisfies because He's the Lord. He's your Creator. He's your God. He's the author of life. He's the one that knows how life is supposed to go. And He's saying, put your faith in Me and Me alone. And what I'll do is I'll give you a new life. I'll give you a brand new life. Not just in the future. I'll give it to you right now. I'll forgive your sins. And I'll give you an undefeatable hope for eternity so that whatever you face, you can know that I'm in charge of it and I'm taking care of it. Even if it's tough, even if it's painful, I'm going to take you through it. And in the end, I'm going to give you a glorified body. I'm going to call you out of the tomb and you're going to be with me in glory forever. No more pain, no more tears, no more crying, no more woundedness, no more unfulfilled existence. You're going to be in glory with Him forever. That's what Easter's about, right there. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a regular church attender. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I'm not glad you're here so that we can have one more seat filled on our big day of the year. That's not why I'm glad you're here. I'm not here to see how big I can build this church. That's meaningless. What I'm here to do is to tell you about Jesus so your life can be changed. He's alive. And as so, He's the Lord. And that means that the claims of Christianity are true, the promises of Christianity are true. And that means this, that if you put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you a relationship with Himself. And one day He'll call you out of the tomb. He'll call you out of the grave. He'll give you a new body, a glorified body that you'll enjoy forever in perfection. See, Easter makes all the difference and all of it hinges on the resurrection. Would you please stand? Worship team is going to come. We're going to just close this with a prayer. Let me read a verse for you. John 6.40. Here's what Jesus said. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Did you hear the qualification there? Let me read it again incorrectly. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and does all the things that God wants him to do will have eternal life. No. 
everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him. You cannot merit your salvation. You cannot work and earn anything from God. He wants to give you a gift of forgiveness in eternal life. A gift made possible by His Son. Don't bring anything to the table thinking that you've got something in you that deserves it. You have nothing but sin. But He wants to give it to you. So I want to just pray a prayer here. I want to lead you in a prayer if you want to accept Jesus this morning. Everybody, would you just just quietly pray with me? If you want to walk out of here with the undefeatable hope of an eternal future, then you can just say something like this. It's not the words that do it. It's Jesus that does it. But just as an act of your faith, say, Jesus, I believe that you are the God who left heaven, came in the flesh of mankind so that if I put my faith in you, I can be saved forever. I believe that. I believe that you paid for my sin and you rose from the dead to prove who you are and I'm trusting in you and you alone for my salvation. Now if you did that this morning, here's what the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not 99%, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me just pray a prayer over all of you. Father, I ask that you would work in the lives of those that are here. Some here, kind of like one of the testimonies we heard, some here know you, but they're just living for other things and they need to get their priorities right and get focused on you and start living for your glory. And then there are others here who need to put their faith in you for the first time. They need to have the new life that you want to give them and I pray that you would give it to them. I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and teach them to learn to walk and talk and think and desire and be motivated by the things of Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.